Hi there, and welcome to yet another episode of the Room and Room Podcasts. Really appreciate you coming along and joining us today. Well, look, we're doing things a little differently today for this episode in that instead of just having to listen to myself, Charlotte Westwood, going on and on, we've actually got a guest veterinarian and nutritionist joining us for this episode to help step us through all things to do with a topic that's really relevant at the moment, which is transition feeding of dairy cows before, through and after calving. So more about our special guest shortly, but first, if you're new to these podcasts, just a little bit of background about us. These Room and Room podcast episodes are actually a spin-off from the original Facebook group, The Room and Room. So if you're not already a member of that group, do head over and join the group and take part in our Room and Nutrition community. So yeah, back to the podcast. First up, as I said, my name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand-based veterinarian and nutritionist who's spent oh, the last 30 years or so working in uh, animal health and nutrition, both here and in Australia. In this episode, we've been joined by another vet and nutritionist, Laura Patty. So welcome, Laura. Thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy week. So get start, things started, Laura. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background around your veterinary and nutrition journey so far in your world? And where, how have you managed to get to where you are today? Hi, everyone. And thank you, Charlotte. It's great to be here and to be discussing a topic I'm very passionate about. I grew up in a dairy farm in the Bay of Plenty, which was the beginning of my love for cows. I was a clinical vet for 10 years, mostly working in the dairy and farm animal space. And I've always had a really keen interest for nutrition and actually remember doing one of your vet learn courses, Charlotte, a long time ago. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So this first piqued my interest and led me to do further study in nutrition. In 2020, I had an opportunity to work for PTG Wrightson's as nutrition technical support. And this has really allowed me just to get to that next level of knowledge. And last year, I passed my membership exam for the Australian New Zealand College of Veterinary Sciences and, and Ruminant Nutrition. And so, yeah, massive thank you to Charlotte uh, for her support and mentoring me, which allowed me to achieve this big goal. Oh, um, too easy, Laura. Look, um, that's a fantastic background. uh, And I really commend you for taking the leap of faith to jump from veterinary practice into more of a nutrition side of things. Taking advantage of, given the fact you studied so hard and achieved so well in the the vet exams, we're going to lean on you and ask for a little bit more information about the transition period around carving, because I know that's the thing that you're particularly passionate about. And I guess to kick this transition topic off, Laura, can you help us out by just defining, like, what is um, the transition period and and what are the aims uh, when we wanted to transition our cows really well? Yeah, so the transition period actually encompasses the three to four weeks before calving and the three to four weeks post-calving. So this is a crucial and key time of the season that sets the foundation and also the potential for the season's production to come. So how good can we get? 
there are four key aims of successful transition management that we're trying to achieve. So the first one is we really want to have a happy rumen. So anything we can do to reduce any ruminal disruption. So that might be things that cause ruminal uh, acidosis or subclinical rumen acidosis. We also want to enable the cow to have a happy rumen so that she can really utilize that feed as efficiently as possible. Secondly, we want to minimize any metabolic issues like our milk fever or grass tetany. Third aim is to minimize any negative energy balance and ketosis. So the liver really is a central hub of the cow and it needs to be able to function at its potential for the cow to perform. When we get negative energy balance, fat is mobilized and this will go to her liver. Now the liver needs to prioritize dealing with this fat and other processes like making her sugar, known as gluconeogenesis, and being able to detoxify ammonia, those processes are compromised, which can put her a little bit on the back foot. And then finally, our fourth goal of good transition is we really want to support that immune system and avoid any immune suppression that we can. So on farm, the transition period is when most animal health issues occur for the season. It's not only costly to treat, but it's also stressful, and it also limits and impacts the cow's performance for that entire season. So the better she transitions and the less issues of things like endometritis and mastitis will occur. Oh, Laura, that's a, a brilliant scene set. I mean, it's um, quite a number of things we've got to think about all, <laughs> all in one hit, isn't it? That happy rumen, getting the metabolic issues out of the way, such as ketosis and milk fever and tetany. And yeah, couldn't agree more on that immune system. That's a, that's a brilliant wrap up. So... Well, obviously, there's you know room for a lot of things to go wrong, Laura, when things don't go right through transitioning. What are the, the main metabolic problems that we see? Because you touched briefly on the, the big three, the, the milk fever and the tetany and the ketosis. So tell us a bit more about that, because that's a bit full on, eh? Yeah, so it sounds like it's a bit doom and gloom at that time of the season, and, and there are many challenges. I like to think of them as challenges rather than problems. So, yeah, big challenges, uh, common Metabolic issues would be milk fever, which is our hypocalcemia or low blood calcium. Uh, our grass tetany, which some may cause, call grass staggers. Um, also, that's known as our hypomagnesemia, so low blood magnesium. And then ketosis, that mobilization of fat, so that the cow can produce ketones to meet an energy deficiency. So that's the big three that we're really trying to uh, avoid at this time of the year. But an exciting fact, and that's why I call it a challenge, because if we embrace it as a challenge, we can achieve some really cool results. It's possible to have less than 2% of the herd treated for clinical milk fever in the calving season. So that's only two cases per 100 cows. Farms that have a planned approach for their stringers, colostrums and milkers, they achieve this, and some actually do much better, as low as 1%. We all know how stressful and time-consuming it is treating those down cows. So the less of them we have, the happier we all are. Oh, Laura, that's um, going to be very reassuring to a lot of people listening that we, we can tangibly get down to 2% even on some of our grass-based systems. And people listening in from Australia where lead feeding may can, uh, have no uh, grass in the system at all, it is even possible to get to zero. But I think it's exciting for those with grass in the system, for springers particularly, to know that, 2% is possible. So, yeah, bring it on. More conversation about that. Uh, Laura, look, you did mention um, hypocalcemia. So that's a hypo, low calcemia, calcium in the blood. 
as one of the key things we need to understand. So we're not withstanding, we need to know about hypermagnesemia and ketosis too, for sure. But I know I've heard you talking about hypocalcemia as you define it as a gateway disease. So not a gateway as in the cow's gone down in the gateway, the <laughs> treatment of the gateway, but <laughs> seriously though, a gateway disease. Can, can you explain a bit more about that definition of hypocalcemia for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So as we know, with, and we're probably a bit more familiar with when it comes to milk fever, is that our cows go down. So this is because calcium is really important for our skeletal muscles, and skeletal muscles are the muscles like our leg, our leg muscles. So we need calcium to get those muscles to contract and to work properly. When there's low blood calcium, the leg muscle can't function, and the cow becomes weak and she goes down, and this is our clinical milk fever but calcium is actually important for all our body muscles. So subclinical milk fever also slows these muscles, so such as her rumen. If her rumen isn't contracting as well, she won't eat as well because she can't mix her food and get that passage of food going through. If she's not able to eat as well, then that means we could possibly run into negative energy balance and ketosis can become a big risk. And this is one of our main aims of a successful transition is to avoid ketosis. And then if we go explore that further, calcium then also plays a role in supporting our immune system. So the risk of infection is higher when there is low blood calcium. Calcium supports our white blood cells. So avoiding immune suppression was another of our transition aims. Another really key muscle in the body is the uterus. So after calving, that has to shrink considerably. And if we don't have sufficient calcium, this won't contract quickly after calving and we can get more retained membranes and endometritis for our dirty girls. The next muscle is the teat sphincter. So this one doesn't work as well at the end of the teat and doesn't close properly and quickly after milking, we can have an increase in the risk of our mastitis. So as you can see, the clinical and subclinical milk fever opens the door or the gate, so to speak, to many animal health issues that can negatively impact the cow and her future performance. So we nickname it the gateway disease. It opens ourselves up to a whole lot of problems. Oh, that's a great definition. And I know a lot of listeners will be going, wow, how can one mineral have so many touch points into so many parts of health and well-being? Goodness me. So yeah, any, any part of transition planning is very much to slam that gateway shut thanks very much but look in terms of when you're working with one of your clients and I know you get out and about a lot on farm and if they're dealing with hypocalcemia so maybe they've got seven eight nine percent of cows being affected with hypocalcemia what are some of the the main steps that you start a conversation with when you're trying to think about what can you do you know to sort that hypocalcemia challenge that they've got yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's such a big, meaty topic. So I really like to break it down into four key steps that can successfully be implemented on farm. This breaks it down and actually gives us a bit more of a, a planned stepwise approach. So firstly, I want to make sure that our diet uh, is balanced for the springers and that it's fully meeting their nutrient requirements. Secondly, we want to make sure we've ticked the box that we've got adequate magnesium supplementation. So these first two are really crucial for any farm and are, are getting fairly well cemented in most farm systems. Thirdly, though, if we really want to achieve that, that great transition management and that less than 2% of down cows, then we want to try and reduce the decad of the diet, the dietary cation and iron difference. So if we can lower that, that's really going to be a cherry on top for us. 
But then once we've set her up well, we don't want to fall at the final hurdle. So the fourth step is making sure we have a good plan for our colostrum and our milking cows. Goodness me, it's um, a whole lot easier to think about, isn't it, when you break it down into some really concise steps like that. Well, not to put you on the spot, can we drill that down to a greater level of detail on each of those four steps? So just listeners remembering that first, it's about a balanced diet for springers. Secondly, that magnesium story again, just like in the previous magnesium podcast, anyone that wants to go back and listen to that. And then you mentioned DCAD, and then obviously the plan for colostrum milkers. So you step those through, you're able to drill down into the next level of detail because, you know, not all of those steps might work for everyone, but at least then they can pick out, you know, maybe one or two things differently that they can do on farm. Love to hear some more detail. Absolutely. So we want to ensure that pre-calving cows are fully fed. We want that. We don't want to mobilise any body fat, body fat and compromise that liver in any way. Now, fully fed is not the same as overfeeding. So we want to fully feed and meet all their requirements. And it helps us to minimise any negative energy or nutrient balance that can happen pre-calving. We've discussed some of those reasons earlier. We also want to ensure all the cow's nutrient demands are being met. So we not only want energy and total dry matter intake, but that we have the correct amount of protein, fibre and mineral requirements. Now, this doesn't have to be fancy. This can simply be uh, pasture and hay or pasture and silage. But those ratios, we might be able to tweak to better balance that diet. On some farms, it is possible to also introduce a small amount of the milking cow feed. So this might be farms that have the ability to have a feed pad or in-shed feeding or simply things like maize silage, which is fed in the paddock. So this helps to meet the goal of maintaining a happy rumen by adapting the cow gradually to these new feeds. So balancing the diet doesn't have to be all bells and whistles and lots of calculations. We can do it fairly simply, but we just want to ensure that we're meeting her requirements. Second uh, is our magnesium supplementation. So we're really aiming for this to kick in for the cows and uh, the, the spring is three to four weeks pre-calving. Because there's no storage in the body for magnesium, it must be supplied every day. It's super important in preventing milk fever and it does this by activating hormones in the body. These help to mobilize calcium and the cow's ability to mobilize calcium from the bone. And it also increases her ability to absorb calcium from her food and supplements. What is really great is that it's actually really easy to blood test cow's magnesium levels and to ensure that your magnesium supplementation is being successful. So definitely get your vets involved if you want to double check where that is because it has a huge impact on our season. Then thirdly is our DCAD. So our aim is for cows to be on a low or a negative if possible, which can be a little bit tricky in our New Zealand system, but a low DCAD diet for two to three weeks pre-calving. The lower the DCAD diet for springer cows, then the tighter and better prevention we have of any of those metabolic issues. So to implement a diet like this, it's really achieved uh, by feed testing our pasture and supplements, and then we balance those. First of all, I like to work with the diet. So we might include low decad feeds like hay or straw, maize silage and grains. They can be super helpful to put into a springer diet if possible. And then we want to, as part of that diet picture, avoid high potassium. So this increases the decad. So we want to avoid those effluent paddocks. And once we've set this foundation of the diet around her nutrient requirements, her energy, and then decad, 
that's when we can go and add in some minerals if we wish. And for this um, and low decad minerals, I really advise you to get your vet or your nutritionist, nutritionist involved to have a plan that best suits you and your farm. Yeah, that's an important point, isn't it, Laura? Because, you know, obviously there's a lot of commercial proprietary products available and, you know, a lot of the claims are made, this is going to fix everything for you. But uh, I, I agree with your advice that every farm's slightly different and often a single product doesn't necessarily work. Would that be your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it could even be a small tweak in their standard dose rate. Not going to fit your particular farm. We may lower it, we may increase it. Uh, to get even better control, and that has a huge impact uh, to your final result. Absolutely. So, yeah, definitely um, working with your vet and, and your qualified nutritionist. Look, that's mm. awesome with those ones. You, you made the mention of, of your step number four about colostrums. Now, mm. in terms of dealing with hypocalcemia and cl- clinical cases of milk fever in your colostrums, what's some, some good tips and tricks that you'd use on farm? Obviously, lime flour has been around for quite some time, but is it just about lime flour or what else do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So a common misconception is that if we have down cows and our colostrums, it's all to do with dealing with the colostrums. If we're getting down cow in our colostrums, we can really impact them from those first three steps. But if we've set her up to be so ready for calving and we've set up all these processes so that she doesn't get, get milk fever and low blood calcium, We've got to supply the calcium, so that's super important that we get that in. And it's quite high rates for our colostrum girls because our colostrum milk has twice the amount of calcium in it than whole milk. So from here, we want to make sure we're getting a good two to 300 grams of lime flour per cow per day. So it sounds quite hefty, uh, but this is really what we need to get to meet her requirements. Now, supplementation never comes separate to management. So some tips and tricks uh, that I use for those girls when we're, say, drafting from our springer mob and we're drafting off our calved cows, if they're going to be held anywhere uh, and they've got a period that they're going to be standing off before they get to their paddock, sometimes a simple uh, bale feeder with some baleage or hay with lime flour on it where they're going to have to wait is a really good way to get that in as quickly as possible. So a product is only ever as good as what we use it and how we manage it. So it's really important. We want to give them every every opportunity to snack. We want to give them every opportunity to feel better and to get that lime flour in. So we don't want to push them hard and we want to treat them like they're nibblers. They're not gorgeous yet. They don't know how to eat a big meal. So give them an opportunity to do that and they'll be much happier for it. Oh, that's such good advice. Yeah, Um unlike magnesium that you can overdo, you know, provided they can find feed under a layer of the chalky lime flour. There's no such thing as too much lime flour is there uh, for colostrum. But, but we'll Correct. come back to another topic that I know you're very passionate about, which is the whole pre-calcium story, but hold that thought. We will come back to that. But look, um, <laughs> I think, you know, those four key steps that you've stepped through are really, really good because someone might already be doing the colostrum part well, but there's opportunities to change the springers. So, small bites to eat the elephant or whatever, one of your four steps are, are really mm. important. So with springers, it's always that um, that conundrum, isn't it, that for most of us here in New Zealand, we normally have some harsher uh, in our diets, you know, and, and a lot of System 1 or perhaps System 2 farms just carve down on pasture and maybe a bit of hay and can't feed through the, you know, in-shed feeding system and don't want to feed meal and everything. Do you have any specific advice or, or your practical tips and tricks around trying to work on a hypercalcemia problem with those really um, high levels of pasture in the springer diets? Yeah, absolutely. And this 
is what gets me super excited about this topic is that there are some really neat products to help tackle this challenge now. But what will really have your biggest impact is that we do feed test. You'll hear about me repeat this a few times, but that we do feed test our paddocks and our pasture. And if we have got hay or baleage going in, we test that as well. It's quite important because it gives us an idea of where the biggest risk is on our farm and what paddocks we may be able to avoid uh, that will really have a big impact in preventing that milk fever. So number one, knowing your farm. With that test information, uh, we can put a plan around how those DCAD minerals may look to have an impact. And like I said, a lower DCAD is good. So some reduction is going to give us some gains and give us some control, which is awesome. It doesn't have to be zero to have some good, uh, good progress. Things, if we do have hay or baleage, and then what I've commonly done on farms is it's simply putting these minerals into a really thick slurry and putting them on, on top of that hay or baleage. So you don't need a feed pad. Um, and the example we'll, we'll talk about later was all done in the paddock. There was no feed pad and there was no in-shed feeding. So it is, it is possible for us guys out there uh, in, in our simple system one and two farms. Some other really cool, exciting things is that some feed companies are making a really large 10 mil feed pallet that can be fed on the ground. So it's big enough for cows to pick up and they're including these minerals in them. So these are really targeted for the pasture only farmers and we can get that in there. Um, and then even loose lick options are being formulated if there is no hay or silage or supplement as well. On feed will give us, so even if it's just simply on hay, will give us some tighter control because each cow has a chance to have a piece of the pie, so to speak. Um, sometimes we can just get a few more feed bugs if we're doing things like a loose lick or whatever, just because we may not be getting equal bites of the pie or we're relying on their drive to get into that product. Jeez, this is um, reassuring, hey, for people that are feeling a little bit, oh, I'm only system one, system two, and I can't do things differently. There's obviously a range of options to consider. And, and once again, there's not a one-stop shop to fix it for anyone, eh? But uh, mm. some good opportunities there. So thanks, Laura. So magnesium, and as we've already mentioned, yeah, there's a, a magnesium-themed podcast if listeners want to scroll back through that one. I guess, again, leaning into the practicalities that you really strongly bring to your clients, what's your three key take-homes around magnesium for listeners? Um, as in the, the common things when you're troubleshooting why magnesium's not being done very well, apart from the obvious one when it's still on the pallet in the shed, but... <laughs> yeah, it helps if we put it out there. Um, no, yeah, so there's a couple of common themes that, that come through on farm and we've got a little bit in reverse now. So that message of supplementing magnesium pre-carving is fairly well embedded in the farm system. So one of the issues we commonly face now and, and that Charlotte and I have actually worked together on is too much magnesium. So yes, unfortunately, uh, too much can be a bad thing. It is completely understandable that when there is issues with milk fever, uh, the farmers will want to do everything they can to prevent it. As it's, it's super stressful and, and not pleasant for anyone. So we know magnesium helps prevent milk fever, so we put more and more of it in to try and overcome this issue. But too much mag can actually make cows, one problem is too sleepy, just like we can take magnesium to help us get to sleep if you're anything like me, that's, that's what I do. Um, so it helps give them, get them too sleepy. The other one is it also could give them diarrhea and scours. So uh, Epsom salts is one, which is what we do often sometimes with cows. Mag sulfate uh, can definitely give you the runs, which isn't so so pleasant. Sleepy cows, well, they're not going to eat as well because they're, they're just standing around. They might be mooching um, and they're a bit dopey. So therefore, there's a bigger risk of ketosis and milk fever because they're not eating very well. 
Similarly, if you have cows with diarrhea or the scouring with too much mag, they're not able to absorb all their nutrients from their feed and all the, the minerals that are in their feed because the food's passing through them so quickly and going out the other end. So this again increases their risk of ketosis and, and milk fever. So that's number one is, is actually too much mag. So just making sure you work alongside your veterinarians or, or nutritionists around magnesium supplementation rates. Uh, the next one is factoring in utilisation or the wastage of the magnesium and how we're feeding it is really important. So firstly, I like to look at how much elemental mag we need. And there's some really cool dairy and zed resources around rates of mag that is required for cows pre-calving and, and milking cows. So we want to know how much we actually need them to consume. So, for example, if um, we're aiming to get 30 grams of magnesium oxide to be consumed by the cow, then if I'm going to be dusting this, I could lose up to 50%. And this is good weather conditions. I'm likely to lose 50% of that mag oxide. So I'm going to double it, using an easy example. So I'm going to dust around 60 grams per cow per day to achieve 30 grams of mag oxide consumed per cow per day. So that's really important looking at um, utilisation of different methods. So uh, in shed versus feed pad versus dusted or in feed in the paddock will all have slightly different wastage rates. We've just got to have, have a bit of mindfulness around that. And thirdly, the common one is we, being a pasture system, do have the challenge of high potassium and high nitrogen pastures and this can increase our requirements and need for mag and by more we've already touched on too much but by more mag it may actually only be another 10 grams of mag oxide is enough to overcome this challenge so again seek advice if this could be an issue on your farm just so that you get things right. Laura, that's some really practical advice around magnesium. All those take-homes are all doable on farm, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners will be able to take something out of that. Now, going back, I guess, to your, your infamous four-step approach to preventing milk fever, that gateway disease you mentioned before, and we talked briefly about um, DCAD. Could you tell us, I suppose, a little bit more detail about DCAD? I know it's been controversial over the years, but anyone new to the industry may not have been aware of a lot of publicity around DCAD maybe 10 years ago. And um, yeah, what does it stand for, Laura? Tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. So DCAD essentially stands for Dietary Cation Anion Difference. Now, this sounds very much like a weird language and something from high school chemistry. Uh, it sounds scary and it sounds complicated, but we can keep it, again, quite simple. So potassium and sodium, these increase the DCAD number. And our chloride and our sulfate, they help lower this DCAD number. The cool thing is we've got calculators and software that can do all that maths for us so you don't need to get caught up in numbers. Uh, get in touch with your vet and nutritionist and they can definitely help you there. But take home is we want to avoid high potassium and we want to try and add in some more chloride and sulfate. Well, the best useful tip I can give around DCAD that I talk to a lot of my farmers around is that DCAD really is a DCAD diet is a slow dimmer switch. It takes time to turn on. If you can imagine someone standing at the wall just very slowly turning on a dimmer switch, it takes time to get to its full brightness and its, and its potential. For this reason, we need the animals to be on a low DCAD diet for around 14 to 21 days to have a successful transition and control of those metabolic issues. It works by increasing the cow's ability to mobilise calcium from her bones 
And it also increases how much calcium she can absorb from her diet. I like to think of the intestines or the, or the gut having little calcium pumps in there. And the DCAD allows the cow to install more pumps so then she can get more calcium from her food once she's calved. But for all of us that have worked on any farm, any installation process can take time. And it's just the same as a cow. It takes time to build up this process in her body. So it's not a one-stop shop, one day of minerals. We want to have a plan for a good couple of weeks pre-calving. Oh, Laura, that's great. So ground and I love, love the dimmer lights, which I'll remember that one. But yeah, it does take time to get that process for a cow to sort her life out with being able to mobilise and absorb calcium. Hey, so um, very well said. Well, look, obviously we've, you know, you've shared some really good tips and tricks about some of the things we can do around transition feeding, but um, with all the costs going up and diesel and yeah, everything mm. at the moment, I know mm. that you've got a good reputation with your clients for keeping a really close eye on the whole cost-benefit analysis and, and I guess making sure your clients only, you know, they're not going to want to put a dollar in for 50 cents out or even a dollar in and a dollar out. They want a dollar in and mm. lots of dollars out. So um, <laughs> in investment and, and DCAD management, obviously you start looking at anionic products and, you know, well, sometimes mm. you get what you pay for or whatever, but can you share any examples where you've actually, like, worked on a metabolic problem not only from a decad point of view, but just, you know, that dollar in and a few more dollars out. Did you get more dollars yeah. out than dollars in? Oh, we certainly got lots more dollars out than we put dollars in, which is very exciting. So it can sound quite expensive to invest in, in a decad mineral supplements uh, and along with the feed testing, because that also comes at a cost. So the farm I'll use as an example, I love for the fact that the records uh, are really, really well kept on farm. So it's an easy one to, to do some analysis on. And, and I'd encourage you all when, when you're investing in something to, to keep those records because you can review your system and, and tweak it and make sure it's working for you. So I worked with a farm that had uh, 920 cows. So we're talking, you know, a decent farm. It, it's a lot of work there and, and challenge. So uh, in regards to staff numbers and getting everyone on the same page. The uh, traditional incidence of milk fever is at around 8%, not terribly uncommon uh, in our pasture systems. And these are the cows that were actively treated for milk fever. So they weren't down for other reasons. They do specifically record uh, that these are milk fever cows. In that same year, uh, unfortunately, eight cows uh, succumbed to milk fever. And so we can estimate some costs around what this would, would cost to a system from some Great New Zealand work that was done up in the Waikato around the loss production from clinical and, and subclinical milk fever cows. The loss from the deaths was estimated to be around 40,000. So this is the value of the cow and her loss production for the entire season at $6.50 a milk solid. This was a couple of years ago. Then from their clinical cases, uh, so the 8% of cows that went down, there was a further loss there of, of 33,000. So that is the cost to treat them, uh, and it's also the lost production. So for that season, she won't be able to produce as much milk for that entire season. The next level, so we're up to around 73,000 now in, in lost opportunity to the farm. Then a cow that suffers from subclinical milk fever, she also has a loss in production for that season. And based on this New Zealand work, this was estimated to be around 120,000 of a potential production that was lost at a $6.50 payout. So that's some pretty hefty numbers uh, that we've got there. That, that, that's an opportunity for us to, to gain on farm. So what does it cost to put in a decad or the, or the cost that was spent on this farm to put in these minerals? It was around 11000 to treat 920 cows uh, for 14 days for mineral cost. 
And then we've probably got another 1,000 or, or 1,500 in regards to feed testing that was done. Um, there's a lot of feed testing done on this farm in regards to the silages and paddocks uh, that we were going to have carving cows on. So we better hope for our 11,000 uh, to 13,000 investment that we've made some money. Uh, so what was actually achieved? This was, again, like I said, done all feeding on the paddock. So this was grass silage, May silage and pasture, and that was the complete diet. What was achieved? Uh, we had zero deaths from milk fever. This was super exciting and makes everyone on farm pretty happy. So there's 40,000 saved right there. Program's already paid for them itself uh, in this situation, but we gained so much more. So the clinical cases dropped from 8.3% down to 1.4%. So an opportunity costs that were lost, we've now saved ourselves 20,000, we're up 20,000 uh, better off. And then on top of that, there was another saving of 100,000 in regards to subclinical milk fever cost to the system. So for a 12 to $13,000 investment, uh, there's an estimated saving of around 150 grand. So it's well worth exploring this option on farm as with all costs in this current environment, have gone up. Programs will likely cost a bit more, but so has milk payout, and you can see just how much margin uh, there is there. One final thing I'd love to highlight is just that in this equation, we've left out a couple of other big gains on farm. So this is not including on uh, included in his return or estimated return on farm. There's actually the reduction we've got in endometritis, so our duty girls at metrotechin. Traditionally, uh, about 15% were treated each season, and in one season, we're down to 6%. This comes down to that successful transition. And we've also, year on year, got improvements uh, around the reproduction outcomes on farms. So, yeah, many benefits there uh, that uh, we don't always include on, on how much you get back in your pocket. Wow, that is one case study worth taking note of. Um, and as you say, that's an absolute uh, minimum return, isn't it, for all the hidden things, mm. of course, that hypercalcemia can contribute to. So I think it's pretty compelling. Uh, and obviously, and you've mentioned you know, before about the, the people factor and the opportunity mm. cost of doing other things around farm because you're, you're busy lifting cows and treating cows and, and the whole emotional mm. thing too of losing, you know, sector-top mm. cow or something. So... I think, you know, anyone, you know, based on this case study that are uh, dealing with a, a higher prevalence of incidence of milk fever really, really wants to be talking to a qualified rural professional or vet or nutritionist to look into these opportunities and uh, mm. improve performance. It's, thanks heaps for that, Laura. Look, obviously hypercalcemia is, yeah, like you've said, it's a real costly condition and, and you want to get it sorted. But you mentioned um, DCAD and you mentioned magnesium. There's always the one other discussion topic that comes up time and time again, to which is not an easy answer. But tell us your thoughts on feeding calcium before calving, calf still on board, to your springer cows, because there's a lot of different opinion out there. Tell us your thoughts. Yeah, it's another great topic. Uh, And it's one that I love to usually explain with pretty pictures. I like to call them pretty pictures. It's more like a lot of scribble uh, on a whiteboard (laughs) with with farmers and and rep. So do springers need extra calcium? And just like Charlotte said before, the answer is it depends, which is very annoying and frustrating. So essentially my take home around this topic is that high calcium pre-calving, regardless of the source, whether it's lime flour or gypsum, so gypsum is calcium sulfate, it can increase the risk of milk fever. So I won't bog you down with all the percentage of calcium per kilo dry matter, but there are some great figures out there that vets and nutritionists do use to ensure you're within a safe safe limit. 
So yes, gypsum, which is our calcium sulfate, is a negative decad mineral with the sulfate. So it gets a name for being springer safe. But it's also, it's still calcium at the end of the day. And I've worked with some situations where the Springer diet is just rock bottoming out in calcium. There's none, there's pretty much none around. So yeah, in that case, uh, we, we have a, a reason and a justification for how we use gypsum. But in other systems, we also uh, have, have enough for our Springers and we can chuck them into this danger red zone and cause ourselves um, a whole world of trouble. There are our system four and system five farms who have a really strong negative decad and really tight control over every animal in that spring of mob. And they might choose to supplement a lot of calcium. Again, they're working alongside, one to, alongside someone to guide them in this area. Moral of the story, if you are looking to include any calcium source in the pre-calving diet, my strong recommendation is that you test the pasture in the supplementary feed and you make sure it's actually required that it is put in at a safe level. So there is no one-size-fits-all approach here. Really sorry. Um, the, re but the reward of getting it right is so awesome. And as Charlotte said, it's so satisfying when you can see farmers smiling and calving and being so much less stressed because cows are looking great and they come in humming for milking and we're not getting down cows and it's just, it's just fabulous. So the reward of getting it right is awesome and the risk of getting it wrong can just lead to a lot of down cows and a very stressed farmer just because it works for your neighbour doesn't mean it's going to work for you and I can't stress the importance of getting someone qualified in this space involved so that you achieve the results that you're after. Oh look thanks Laura that's really sound advice and I think I love the point you've raised just because it worked for the neighbour doesn't mean it's going to work for you and that sums it up everyone's different and obviously the level of calcium in the various feeds for springers whether your neighbour's feeding maize and you're not or vice versa mm. or whatever yeah, feed testing needed and looking at the different feeds on that requirement for calcium, exactly as you say. One other point, it just reminded me actually, I was talking to someone yesterday about asking, just because I've got gypsum in on farm for the springers, does that mean I can feed it to the colostrums? And that's a question that's come up a couple of times and I'll say what I think and then you, you can, <laughs> we, we can disagree, I, I don't mind, but my personal opinion, and it probably goes back to my old um, mentor back in the days with Professor Ian Lane, who was my PhD supervisor, and he's, I suppose, Mr. Decad in Australia. And his comment's always been that we shouldn't feed gypsum to colostrum cows because it is a negative decad. And once a cow calves, we want to switch immediately from negative decad to strongly positive decad. It was asked yesterday after someone seeing it on a Facebook feed about feeding gypsum to colostrums. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. So that science around milking cows needing to be on a positive decad diet for, for production um, is very much tried and true. There was a cool podcast I listened to the other day for those that do want to geek out. It's called The Real Science Exchange, but they did one for a different reason, but putting milk was on a negative decad diet for a different reason. But essentially, it did drop production and it did drop dry matter intake. So, yes, essentially, uh, it's number one, a really expensive way of getting calcium because it's not as high in percentage of calcium as lime flour. And two, it's sort of going against what we're trying to achieve. And I totally, again, understand how everyone wants a, a one, one silver bullet approach to all our cows on farm, but you'll always compromise one or the other. So if we have a milking approach and the springers are a part of that, we've compromised them. If we have a springer approach and we want to try and get the milkers or colostrums to fit into that, we've compromised our colostrums and milkers. So that's how I look at it. Unfortunately, it's biology and, we're, and we've got to do our best to work with that challenge. 
Yeah, so we're on the same page there, Laura, which which mm. is good. I think that is an important take home if you've got gypsum and you've got lime flour, um, particularly if you have some junior staff members and calcium's calcium, mm. just a little bit of staff training and reminding. We'll just get the spray paint out on the rack pallet and just springer calcium and colostrum and milker calcium. So lime flour to colostrums and milkers, gypsum to springers. Well, Absolutely. look, um, obviously we've talked so far about magnesium and then now calcium, and particularly that regard to the type of calcium. I guess there's other bits and pieces that inevitably come into the equation. You've talked about potassium being the baddie, which couldn't agree more. Phosphorus. Ah, it's always that phosphorus discussion for transition cows before <laughs> and after calving. What's your view on the world on phosphorus during transition feeding, Laura? And through Charlotte's passion, we have all the good questions coming. Um, this is brilliant. Another one that that's Probably got a few opinions out there uh, in, in, in practice. So for me personally, um, just like calcium pre-carving, we can have too much of that. We can also have too much phosphorus pre-carving, which can increase our risk of down cows. So high phosphorus levels, again, there are numbers that we work with, which is above 0.4% of dry matter of phosphorus in the diet, on a total diet kilo of dry matter. But high phosphorus above this, it can inhibit the action of vitamin D, which has an important role in how the cow mobilizes calcium from her bones and, and those calcium pumps we talked about in her intestine. So too high phosphorus pre-carving can definitely increase our risk of metabolic issues. It is a really common challenge though, especially for those that winter cow on fodder beet. Uh, fodder beet, as we know, is really low in phosphorus. So we want to make sure we're supplementing phosphorus on a low phosphorus diet. Um, but so when we're getting close to calving, personal practical recommendations are you they like to at least have that if the cows are the phosphorus supplementation if the cows are within four weeks of their calving date so we've got a little bit going in we've got a low phosphorus diet let's halve it though and make sure we stay within those those safe levels and then stop it once they have transitioned off the crop that's the fodder beet challenge the next challenge is the palm kernel challenge so palm kernel is really high in phosphorus and this can be um, a challenge and increase our risk. We have some that feed palm kernel, and I know Charlotte, you did a great write-up on the rumen rumen around this um, and seeking farmers' opinions. It works really well for some, and this can be because their base diet might actually be quite low in phosphorus. So the level that we're feeding in our palm kernel to our springers is completely safe. Other farms have really high phosphorus in their pasture, and we put in more in palm kernel, and sometimes we can have a few issues cropping up. So brings us back full circle. And I said I'd mention it a, a few times here, just that importance of, of testing our feeds um, and, and the benefits that lie within that to make sure we've got the system working well. Couldn't agree more with all of that, Laura. Yeah, phosphorus is a very topical thing, particularly around fodder beet, but remembering that the genetic merit of our cows continues to increase and we can actually uh, encounter phosphorus issues even when cows haven't been near fodder beet. So you don't know if you've got a phosphorus issue uh, unless you feed test and occasionally pick up on blood tests. But obviously blood tests aren't 100% reliable either. Mm. So, yeah, mm. you can't um, manage what you don't measure. Stupid term that keeps overused. Yeah. But I couldn't agree more. We can't talk about feed testing enough, Laura. So some really mm. good advice and thanks heaps for that. What about other minerals? Uh, you know, it's that time of year, eh, where you know there's a lot of salespeople out selling stuff and everything. What, are, what do you reckon some other important minerals for the transition period just just that you talk about once you've talked about the the big three the calcium magnesium and phosphorus yeah absolutely um 
the final ones to wrap that all up is sodium can be is really important, especially again we talked about sodium being a, a positive in the regards to the decad. So we don't want too much for our springers. We want to make sure we're meeting requirements. You may have a very deficient diet for springers. Again, measure. You don't know what you don't measure. But essentially is generalized. We we don't need it for our springers, but as soon as the colostrums and milkers, one of our goals of transition, and this is why transition encompasses the three to four weeks post-calving, one of our goals was a functioning rumen. Now salt provides sodium and sodium uh, is going to be in our saliva. Now our saliva is a really key buffer for that for that rumen function. So if we want to promote really good rumen function and cow health, uh, then salt's going to be important, let alone the, the milk requirements there for her as well. This is the easiest one to supplement. This is uh, great. You can just put it in drums um, and let the cows, they love salt. They're going to lick it if they, especially when they need it, they, they really hoe into it. And you can simply just have some drums on the entry or exit to your dairy shed and allow them to lick away. So they really love salt and it's pretty simple. You don't need any fancy equipment to save some in your drums. The next one is uh, trace minerals will always play a really important role in supporting the immune system. So that fourth uh, aim for transition management. And it's important we have a plan in place around our trace minerals. So again, blood testing and working alongside your vet to know where you are and what your requirements are, or your nutritionist will ensure that those cows requirements are being met and we're supporting that, that immune function of their body. Well, that's um, summing that up in a nutshell. And maybe, Laura, uh, you come back and tell us about trace minerals and, and your view on that for the next <laughs> Laura Patty Charlotte Westwood podcast. So if you're startable, <laughs> we'll take you back when you've recovered from this one. But um, obviously, we've, we've covered a lot of ground and there's some really good take-homes starting to come through here. So I guess for someone that maybe is um, just jumping on the four-wheeler, they'll listen to this podcast and they are going down to pick up another down a cow and they're feeling a little bit caught in the middle of it all and a bit despondent. They may have listened to this. It's a lot of information. Can can you mm. sum up for someone who's just feeling a little bit tired and beaten up? And I know when you're tired like that, sometimes it's hard to make decisions and be proactive. But mm. what would be your advice to someone who's going down to pick up the food? down a cow in, in three days or what's something for their tired brain some just some practical advice of what to do at that stage oh absolutely look when you're stressed and you're tired get help like seek help and support so firstly whenever we've got animals that are unwell or getting milk fever call your vet and get your vet involved um they're going to be there to support you in making those decisions which can be hard when, when you're working some pretty big hours you can get some bloods taken of the recently calved cows and some of those in the springer mob so we can test calcium and magnesium but I also love to include NEFAs in this blood test that is the measurement that will help us to assess the energy balance going on as well and we can get in a planned approach and again more information uh, around how we we can approach a problem and and prevent it from happening again also really important, and I learned this one a little bit the hard way, take some pasture samples when I was clinically vetting um, to help re review your mineral supplementation. When you put blood tests alongside pasture samples, which is the bulk of their diet, you get some really cool information, and it's a great way to be proactive to turn, turn the situation around. I've had a farm that was really low in sodium despite being coastal, and that was actually a lot of the reasons for our metabolic and our milkers. This was in our milkers, but we had a lot of problems going on. So definitely um, take those pasture samples, get your vet involved, blood test your cows. And also it's never too late to implement the plan we've talked about. So we can have start getting a significant reduction in issues in as little as seven days. 
but once it's in full swing in, in, in a couple of weeks, um, a really big impact on, on that metabolic um, problems on farms. So it's never too late and get some help and support and then uh, make a plan with information. Oh, look, that's so good, Laura. And, you know, just to reiterate that you're not on your own on this one and that's why you have a team of rural professionals around you. And it is hard to make a decision when you're tired, but those are the steps to take, um, lean on um, into whoever your main support network is with your vet or perhaps farm consultant alongside you as well. And I think the other really important take-home, Laura, that you've made is don't think we're going to do this different next year. Um, if you're maybe a couple of weeks into carving, you can actually do something this year while you're in the thick of it. But it does. It takes you know a, a bit of energy and courage to to uh, engage with your vet and, and start getting some help. But ironically, from a, a rural professional and vet point of view, to get them involved right when you're in the thick of it, even though you're tired and everything, it's really useful to have an extra set of eyes and, and looking. And sometimes mm. we can pick up things from the cows and from your feeds that if we discuss it, you know, before mating and the cows have well been and gone. It's getting a bit late to try and retrospectively figure out what was going on. So mm. very wise advice, Laura, and reassuring, I think, to many of our listeners who might be feeling a little beaten up by by all of this. Well, look, Laura, I guess wrapping up now, it's, you've given us a tremendous amount of really practical and thoughtful advice, and we really can't thank you enough for joining us here today and sharing all of your wisdoms on the transition feeding of cows. I think it's amazing that you've um, come to the dark side of nutrition and bringing your <laughs> wealth of veterinary knowledge as well, but there's just not enough people out there with the sort of knowledge that you have. Sincerely hope Thanks you can join me. us again. Yeah, look, I'd love to have you back. Join us again soon. Any listeners, you know, jump in and leave a couple of comments in the room and room if you're finding having someone like Laura coming along um, and just giving different views on the world's helpful. And uh, we'll get Laura back and we'll, we'll invite others in as well. But in the meantime, look, um, thanks so much, Laura. And thanks to our listeners once again. And on behalf of myself, it's been Charlotte Westwood. And thanks to our sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds. Thanks to Laura, Laura's employer, PGG Rights, and for sparing the time with Laura to join us today. Thanks very much to all of you guys listening in. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day out and about, whatever you've been up to. And uh, do tune in again very soon. Cheers. Cheers.